0: You would um, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And as we just read our statement of faith, if you have any additional questions about that, please feel welcome to come up to me or to Ben or one of the other leaders here in the church and just ask a little bit for clarification on that, should you have any additional questions. But we are in Ephesians. We're continuing our sermon series through the book of Ephesians and we are in chapter 2. If you want to use the provided Bibles, uh, the blue Bibles near you, that's going to be on page 952 is where we start. 952. And if you're unfamiliar to looking at a Bible, then as you get to page 952, the big number is going to be the chapter. So we're in chapter 2 and we're in verses 1 through 5. The little numbers there are called verses, not actual song verses. It's just to help us understand where in the passage we are. So we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and today we are looking at verses 1 through 5. Beginning in in verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Grateful for the gift that it is to be able to gather on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, to worship you. To be reminded of what Christ has done in his crucifixion. Thank you that he didn't stay crucified. But that on the third day he rose. We begin to remind ourselves of not only that truth, but also the repercussions of that truth as we look at your word. Lord, we pray that you would be with our members today. Be with this body. Have your word shape us. Have it be like a mirror that we look at. Reveal to us in your kindness sin that we need to repent of. We recognize that we are imperfect people and that we do need to consistently and ongoingly repent or protect us from from growing calloused to that. Lord, uh, we pray for those in our congregation who are seeking physical healing. I think of Melanie Gilbert, who had surgery just this past week. God, thank you for the good news that that surgery went well. We pray as a church that that surgery would provide her full relief of the pain that she's been experiencing. Thank you for the gift of medicine. Lord, we also thank you for those who serve our congregation, specifically those in set up and teardown. Lord, it's not a glorious job, but it's one that we are blessed by. It's one that is necessary. Lord, we are grateful for those who take the time to get here early and who stay late for the good of the body. Lord, we pray that you would bless them. We pray that you would send more people to that team to, to help out there. Lord, we pray for other churches that are proclaiming this good news as we know it. Lord, I think specifically of Gethsemane Baptist Church with Pastor Pete Thompson. Thank you for him and his faithful ministry and the intentionality that he brings to his congregation to shape them by the word. Lord, I think of Cambridge Bible Church, Dave Saxton. Lord, thank you for his perseverance in the way that he serves that body. And God, I pray that that body would be edified and that they would love Christ above all else. Lord, be with us. Have us be a body that loves Christ above all else, that is unified in Christ. As we look at this passage, help us to fix our eyes on Christ and him crucified. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I've shared with you guys before um, some of my skills or lack thereof. Uh, The lack thereof section includes being handy. And so some of you know that we're doing a little bit of uh, home projects here and there in our home. When we purchased our our small little house, there was a lot to do. And there's still a good amount to do almost two and a half years later. But what I knew beforehand and have been explicitly made more aware of recently is that I'm just not handy. I, I can do enough to get by, but I am, I am not the guy who's able to uh, go from zero to 100 with a project. I need a lot of help and a lot of guidance. And one of the ways that that was made evident was when we first got our house, we laid down floor. And for those of you who ever laid down floor, you know that's a super tedious and fairly annoying job. And I decided, you know what, let's save some money. I'll do it. And I chose to do it without having the right tools to do it. Or I should say, without using the right tools to do it so we had a table saw for those of you who are familiar with table saw it's just a blade that kind of comes up out of this table like thing it's, it's fairly dangerous and you and I, what i would do is i would measure what i needed to do with the the floor tile or not tile but piece of floor and then i would just kind of put it through that table saw and kind of meander it around and try to cut it the way i wanted to it's pretty easy when the room was pretty straight whenever we came to a kind of a jagged spot it got real dicey And it's amazing that I have all ten fingers still because I got real close to that blade and it was not wise. However, if you look closely, I don't recommend that you do, but if you were to come to our house and look closely at the floor, especially towards some of those more dicey areas where you kind of have to cut it a certain way around a, a door frame or something like that, you'll notice that the guy who put that down wasn't real skilled at it. And what I realized afterward was that, okay, when you get to those really awkward areas, you're supposed to use a jigsaw. And I realized that after the fact I thought, man, this is just, how do people do it so well? Because I'd go to other people's places and see how well the floor was laid and be reminded of my shortcomings. And then I realized that, okay, you're supposed to use a jigsaw. Well, shoot, I had a jigsaw the whole time and I didn't use it. I decided to use a table saw. I overcomplicated the situation. I had the right tool, but I just didn't even think to look into it and try to figure out how to get around these more interesting parts of our home. It's interesting. Uh, although I had that task that I wanted to accomplish, and by God's grace, it's 99% accomplished. There's still some areas that need touched up. I overcomplicated it greatly. And I tried to do it in a way that nobody would prescribe to do. In the same way, oftentimes, when it comes to our ministry, individually and as a church, we tend to overcomplicate things. We tend to do things in a way that God has not prescribed for us. So as we look at this passage... Paul is reminding us, this is how ministry is to be done. He makes it very simple for us. He gives us the way that God has prescribed for us to carry out the ministry that God has placed before us. Oftentimes, when we try to do it our own way rather than submitting to God's way, what we end up saying, not intentionally perhaps, but unintentionally, what we end up saying is that God and his word are helpful, but they're not sufficient. Helpful, but, but not sufficient. I, I know my own ways. I've seen other churches do it certain ways, and I'm kind of going to go that route. This is helpful, but let's go this route. And we often try to attempt the task that God has placed before us of making disciples to the glory of God in a way that God has not prescribed. And so each week, as we go through a passage one of the things that I I tried to to do is lay before you just a brief sentence, a a one, maybe two sentence phrase that gives you the whole summary of the sermon. So if you're paying attention to any part of the sermon, this is the spot to pay attention to because then when somebody asks you what was the sermon about, you can say, here it is. So here it is. The power of God, not the wisdom of man, saves dead sinners. The power of God, not the wisdom of man, saves dead sinners dead sinners and we'll see how this passage benefits um, or speaks into our sanctification into our evangelism into our discipleship into our church's overall ministry because ultimately all of that matters and paul gets at it here but before we unpack each of these verses because that's just kind of standard practice is what we want to do is whenever we gather together we look at god's word and we just try to help you better understand what his word says and how it applies to our lives. We try to point it back to Jesus each time, because Jesus himself told us that all the scriptures point to him. And so, but before we dive in, dive into those five verses, some background regarding this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. So, Paul is writing to the whole Corinthian church. He says that. Now, this is a side note. This is me getting on my soapbox. This is Paul writing to the whole Corinthian church. There's not even a grain of evidence that he's writing to a system of house churches. He's writing to the whole Corinthian church. and I, Real quick, I'll show you why I stand firm on that. It's because if you look just a couple pages back at Romans 16, verse 23, we see Paul write this. He says, Gaius, who's host to me and to the whole church greets you. So this Gaius guy hosted the whole church, is what Paul's saying, he hosted the whole church. Now that's great, Rob, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a Corinthian church. Well, look at me in 1 Corinthians now, chapter 1, verse 14. Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. So Gaius was a Corinthian, and he was host to the whole church. And so Paul is writing to the whole Corinthian church. Okay, we can talk about that more so offline if you want to get into that discussion, but I just wanted to point out before we get going, because I haven't preached in 1 Corinthians yet, and this is one of my soapboxes, is that I really wanted to say that Paul is writing to the whole church. We can rest confident in that. Step off my soapbox. Additional background. Corinth, the city of Corinth, was located in a very strategic area. It was in the heart of a trade route. And so what that meant is that it is a cultural and religious melting pot. There's all kinds of cultural practices going on, all kinds of uh, religious practices going on. There was all kinds of people from different socioeconomic classes. There's all different sorts of diversity in this one city, Corinth. And what was happening was that the church there began to adopt some of it, and it became divided over the various different preferences that they had, various different understandings of things. And this letter, 1 Corinthians, if you think of this as 1 Corinthians, um, Buzz helpfully pointed out that there is essentially a 0 Corinthians. So this is Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, but it's the only one we have in the canon. And so Paul had written earlier to the Corinthian church, and now he's responding for two reasons. One, they didn't quite understand. They had some questions about what he had written. We see that in chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, where Paul says, now concerning what you asked, or concerning what you wrote, back to me. So the first six chapters, Paul's addressing the reports that he heard from Chloe's people. See that in chapter 1. He said in verse 11, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And so then he elaborates and he goes into these various issues in the first six chapters based off this report from Chloe's people. And then chapters 7 through 16, he's answering questions that they had when they wrote back from his letter zero, Corinthians. So, as we look at this book, we will recognize that there are no less than ten issues that the Corinthian church is going through, that Paul addresses. There could be additional ones if you wanted to parse out some of them, but there's no less than ten issues that Paul addresses in his letter. Now, the beginning of this book the first four chapters are, is Paul addressing one issue, the divisions among who they follow. I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos. And Paul just elaborates, he hits home on this issue greatly. So He spends the first four chapters talking about that, and that's where we find ourselves here, in the midst of that discussion. So the theme throughout the whole book, as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians, the theme that you want to keep lodged in the front of your mind is that this book, Paul's letter, is about unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. So in today's passage, as we look at these five verses, Paul is calling his people to unify around his simple approach to ministry. And we'll see it in three points, which are in your bulletin. The first is simplicity in knowledge, and then we see simplicity in presence, and then simplicity in speech. Simplicity in knowledge, presence, and speech. Let me pray, and then we'll dive into each of those. Father, I ask that as we look at each of these three points, as we look at these five verses, that you would help me speak clearly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, the first one simplicity in knowledge. Now, notice how Paul points out that he ministered among them. Look at verse 1. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, here's the thing that we need to recognize that Paul could have spoken in lofty speech and wisdom. Paul was a well-educated man. Acts 26 says that Paul was considered a Pharisee even among the strictest group, the strictest party of the Pharisees. Even they would consider, yes, Paul, you're adhering to everything we're saying here. You, in fact, are a Pharisee among us. And Pharisees had extensive training that they needed to go through, least of which was they needed to memorize the entire Torah, which if you're not familiar, that's the first five books of the Bible. So, Paul had the whole first five books of the Bible memorized. He was very well educated, and he was a Pharisee among the strictest Pharisees. So he could have spoken in eloquent ways, in lofty speech, or with the kind of wisdom that they would have appreciated hearing. And verse 1, as we look at this, this is, verse 1 is kind of the overarching statement of the whole passage. And then verse 2, 3, and 4 elaborate a little bit on verse 1, and then verse 5 gives the purpose for why verse 1 is there. So that's the structure that we are looking at. 1 Corinthians one twenty-two, just a little bit earlier, points out that Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. So Paul says, I'm not, not going to give you either of those. I'm not going to cater to the Jews. I'm not going to cater to the Greeks. I'm going to preach Christ and him crucified. Paul was not like other speakers of that day. One source put it this way. said, in the ancient world, A public speaker's initial visit to a city was critical to establishing their reputation. Orators would compete for applause and offer entertainment to diners in between their meals at the best banquets. Competitive showmanship was the order of the day. So if you were a speaker in that day, you were trying to out-entertain the other speaker that came before you or the speaker who might come after you. After all, these speakers needed to draw a crowd to sustain what they were doing. And so how else are you going to draw a crowd without giving them entertainment? Without giving them what they want? So I was thinking about this passage and I was going through that and studying. I thought, man, how similar to today? How similar in the way that we approach ministry? We've got to give the people what they want. We've got to entertain them. let's let's turn the lights down, let's turn the sound up, and let's let's do whatever we can to make people feel comfortable because they don't want to see one another. They don't want to be convicted of maybe a particular sin in their lives. Let's give them what they want. Paul, however, took a very different approach. Look at verse 2. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Look, Paul was hyper-focused on that. Christ and Him crucified. On one thing. Christ and Him crucified. So what what does that mean practically? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We've heard that phrase. What does it it mean practically to be focused on Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Well, that first part, Jesus Christ, is just focusing on the person of Jesus. Who is He? How did He do ministry? And then Him crucified is His atoning work why, we can ask ourselves, why, why did Christ have to be crucified? Well, it's because of our sin. We are sinful fallen people. We have rebelled against God. We have gone against his ways, and we've said, I, I think I can do it better. And we say, your word is helpful, but not sufficient. And we go about doing things the way that we see fit, and God calls this sin. We can also ask the question, why Christ crucified? Why not Joe crucified? Or why not Dan crucified? Or list any name in there. Why not this guy crucified? Or that gal crucified? Why not? Well, because we need to understand that Christ himself was the only one to ever live a perfect and holy life. The only one who never sinned. So he needed to be crucified. So let's think about Jesus Christ. Yes, his person, his work, his ministry. And then let's think about him crucified. Why did he have to be crucified? What does his crucifixion accomplish? This is what Paul is hyper-focused on. He didn't want to be known as wise, according to the Corinthians. Although he could have been. He could have spoken in a way that they would have said, oh man, I love the way that Paul speaks. He is. He's so captivating. I don't, I don't necessarily agree with this Jesus stuff that he's saying, but my goodness, I, I do love listening to him. He didn't want to be seen as entertaining. Instead, Paul wanted to be known as the guy who just beat the same drum, I heard one guy say he was a, a one-string banjo, just consistently played the tune of Christ and Him crucified. Everything he said and did went through the lens of Christ and Him crucified. Legally speaking, I am not allowed to drive a vehicle without corrective lenses. It's for the good of me and it's for the good of you. I am not allowed to get behind the wheel of a vehicle unless I have glasses on or corrective contacts, corrective lenses. Just for the good of everybody. And in the same way, Paul would put on the lenses, put everything through the lenses of Christ and him crucified for the good of him and for the good of everybody else. If we ever find ourselves more persuaded by an individual's rhetoric than we are the word of God, then that is a red flag. That's exactly what Paul was trying to combat. So for the good of yourself and for the good of others, put on the lenses of Christ and him crucified. We as a church, as individuals, we would encourage you, care for the poor. Why? Well, because 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Christ, though he is rich, yet for our sake, he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Christ's crucifixion purchased salvation for his people. In the same way, let's, let's be a church that loves others. Let's love people. But why? Christ and him crucified. Because if we look, 1 John 4.19, because God first loved us. And we see that most clearly displayed in the crucifixion. So we just look at Christ and him crucified, See, it informs everything that we do. You should be hospitable. Make time for others when it comes to our homes, when it comes to our, our schedules. Why? Well, let's consider Christ's ministry. For three years, he was with the disciples. John 14.3, he even tells us that if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That, where I am, you may be also. The greatest hospitality that we see is in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who provides a way for him to bring others to himself. Prepare a place for them. Let's be a church that walks in humility. You see this in Philippians 2, Christ emptied himself for our sake, he lowered himself for the sake of us. So, as we consider Christ and Him crucified, let's consider Christ. He lowered Himself. Let's consider Him crucified. He lowered Himself so much so that He died on a cross—a humiliating death. Look, one of the one of the ways that you can walk in humility is just very low-hanging fruit, practical, and I can say this because I'm the pastor sitting up here, <laughs> standing up here, is just by showing up for church. Just a weekly habit of saying. I need the other brothers and sisters. I am not strong enough on my own. I might be able to get a good amount out of my Bible study, but I will be better nourished and better edified if I'm around other believers who are also in their Bibles and who are with me, hearing the same text being elaborated on, singing the same songs. It's a weekly act of God, I am not sufficient. I can't do this on my own. I need to be with the believers. It's a weekly way that you can exercise humility. We put sin to death. Another thing that we just view through the lens of Christ and him crucified. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made Christ to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When it comes to our effort to put sin to death, to grow in our sanctification, to grow in holiness, let's consider Christ, who walked in, perfect, in perfection, and let's consider him crucified. He, on the cross, became our sin, and when he died on the cross, he took our sin with him. So now we can walk in newness of life. We still wrestle with sin. That doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect this side of glory, but it does mean that someday your sin will be entirely dead, because Christ has purchased that on the cross. And that should inform the way that we walk in our sanctification. And so look, as we look at these first two verses, Christ and him crucified, that must drive everything that we do. Everything. Jesus Christ, his person, the way that he lived, the way that he ministered, and him crucified. What, what he accomplished on the cross on our behalf. Christian, is that the thing that informs everything you do? Christ and Him crucified. When it comes to your schedule, when it comes to the people you interact with at school, kids, when way you interact with your teachers, parents, when it comes to the way you interact with your spouse, with your kids, when it comes to the way you interact with people at work, Christ and Him crucified, is that the lens in which you see everything else through? Families, what would it, what would it look like if Christ and him crucified was the motto of your household. How would that impact the interactions that you have with one another? Christ, who was patient with his disciples, even though he had to repeat himself countless times. That's convicting for me. Just How easy it is for me to to lose my my temper, my patience with kids, because it's the 14th time I've told them something in the last 19 seconds. Just, this is... When you consider Christ and Him crucified, you see the patience that He had with those who were slow to hear. Christ was reviled on the cross, and He didn't snap back. So, when your coworker says something about you that's not true, is your first response to snap back, or are you going through the lens of Christ and Him crucified? When it comes to the things that you watch, when you have nothing else to do and you want to kill some time watching a show or watching a movie. You take that movie or that show, whatever you want to watch, that YouTube clip, and run it through the lens of Christ and Him crucified. Christ fled temptation. Let's not put ourselves into temptation when it comes to the things that we put before ourselves. When it comes to the way that we spend our money, Christ gave all, sacrificially and joyfully. Is that our attitude in the way that we sacrificially give? Jonathan, um, a few weeks ago, he talks about what this city needs. So it doesn't need another social club, doesn't need another uh, nonprofit organization, just, but what it needs is people who are focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ. I'm paraphrasing, but I want to paraphrase even more. What the city needs is a church that is absolutely focused on Christ and Him crucified. Take that to the public square. See how that begins to shape society. Maybe you're not a follower of Christ this morning and you've heard me say Christ and him crucified about 33 times in the last four minutes. And you're like, that seems way too simple. Thanks, Rob. Enjoyed listening to you thus far, but you're really oversimplifying things. Now, submit to you that yes, I am. I am oversimplifying things. However, we see Paul doing it right here. And the scriptures are sufficient, not just Helpful. So we need to submit ourselves to them. If you look at the hymn, Turn Your Eyes, which Lord willing will sing here, it says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full, not partially, look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. As we focus on Christ, his work, as we focus on what he has done on the cross, other things of the world begin to grow strangely dim. Christ is sufficient. So we see the simplicity in the knowledge that Paul took to the Corinthians. He said, I was devoted to know nothing outside of Christ and Him crucified. Now we see the simplicity in the presence that Paul brought to the Corinthians. Look at me in verse 3. Paul reminds them of how he ministered. He says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Notice, Paul was with them in the flesh. He ministered among them. We see Acts 18 is when Paul, we read that Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He could have just written them a letter and he writes them letters later on. That's what we're reading. But it's important to know that the reason he had sway with them outside of him just being an apostle is because they knew him. He had spent time among them. He had prayed with them. He had proclaimed the gospel to them. There's in-person, face-to-face relationships, and, and those are the most meaningful in church. We must invest in those. We want to be a church. We put our, our values up here. We want to be a church that's relationally deep. It's hard to be relationally deep if the extent of your conversation is through text. I'm not, I'm not dogging text. Like Don't get me wrong. That's a gift. Utilize that. But we must make time to be with one another. Again, Sunday morning is the easiest way to do that. But also understand, as you go about your week, make time in your schedule for one another. That, does not mean that you're going to be able to meet with everybody. I get that. Totally get that. But you can meet with one or two, maybe throughout the month. Shoot them a call. Yes, that's not, Rob, you were just talking about in person. Yes, that's not in person. But find ways to be in each other's lives. Ideally, in person. Paul was with them in the flesh. He was also with them, as he says, in weakness. Now, this could have been physical weakness, Maybe, I mean, as you read the New Testament, you see Paul describing uh, thorn in the flesh, different ailments. So it could have been an illness. It could have been the fact that um, other historians have pointed out that Paul was a relatively small man. He experienced lots of beatings, as we will discuss, or maybe he had a disability. Um, in Galatians, we see Paul talking about how they loved him so much they would have given him their own eyes and that he writes in large letters. So perhaps maybe the disability that he had was that he just wasn't able to see terribly well and there weren't corrective lenses at that point. So maybe he just had a difficult time seeing and it was kind of a burden to others, but the Galatians loved him so much they would have given their own eyes for him. We don't know exactly what it was. It could have been physical, could have been spiritual, just that he recognized his weakness and he recognized the magnitude of the task that was ahead of him. But here's what we need to know is that Paul recognizes this weakness and he boasts in it. He boasts in his weakness. He elaborates this in his next letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 30. He says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. 2 Corinthians twelve five. On my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Later in verses 9 and 10. But he said to me, Paul's weakness forced him to rely on Christ's strength. He recognized that he was weak, but he was focused on Christ and him crucified. And him boasting in his weakness, being reminded consistently of his weakness, pushed him into the strength of Christ. There's a story of a professor of preaching who gathered his seminary students early in the semester, and they went and visited a cemetery. And as they're all filing in, he's calling them, come in closer, closer, closer. All right, get in here. And he told them, I want you to sincerely, with all sincerity, over the graves here, call them to rise and to live. With all sincerity, I want you to call the dead bodies here in this cemetery to rise and live. Some of them were a little, uh, this this is awkward, Um, some of them Gave a little bit of laughs, and they attempted it, and you can guess the story. No dead bodies began to rose, rise from the grave. But what that professor is trying to get across is something that we need to be reminded of, is that we have no ability to bring about spiritual life. We don't have that ability, that rests with God. And so if if we're resting in our wisdom, in our craftiness, in our ability to speak well or have good rhetoric, that doesn't bring about spiritual life. We need to rest in Christ. We need to point people back to the scriptures. We need to pray fervently that God would bring about conversion and trust that we are called to scatter seeds. And some of those seeds will fall on hard ground, on rocky ground, on thorny ground. Some of them will fall on fertile soil but we just continue to scatter seeds and trust that God in his providence and in his kindness will bring about life. We're incapable of producing spiritual life on our own. We are just simply too weak. And Paul said that is how he ministered among them, in weakness. Then he also said, and in fear and much trembling. So that phrase fear and trembling, that's used throughout scripture, kind of put together fear and trembling. Um, It could be a spiritual fear, In that, uh, there's more of a reverence and awe in light of God and the task that he had assigned to Paul. Recognizing how massive and powerful God is and the task that he's given him. And Paul thinks this is is so much, but I can't be disobedient because I have an understanding of who God is. And this task is going to lead me to all kinds of hardships. And so there's fear there. There's trembling. Could also uh, be a physical Fear of trembling. So the spiritual, in light of God and the task that's before him. The physical, in light of those beatings. We see that there, in Second Corinthians, Paul says that he experienced countless beatings. There are probably less than 10 things in my life that I can think of that I've done a countless number of times. You can probably think of a few blinking, inhaling, exhaling. Beatings is not one that I would like to add to that list. Paul said, I've had countless beatings. I can't even remember how many it's been. And so there could have been a very real physical fear and trembling with Paul. He was not trying to put on a front in front of these Corinthians. He was a real man. And he was showing them, I am weak. He says, remember, I was weak. I I was with you and I was among you with fear and trembling. Remember that. Don't don't place your confidence in me. I'm just a, a small man. Put your confidence in Christ. Any fruit that you saw from my ministry or from Apollo's ministry or from Cephas' ministry is because the Lord was kind to provide growth, not because we're incredible men. So unlike the circuit speakers of their day, Paul was not impressive. He just wasn't. He was weak and he displayed fear and trembling, which really are hardly any reasons to place your confidence in somebody. And Paul was to remind them of that. And so Christian, as you consider this passage, are you trying to put on a front? Apostle Paul says don't, don't do that because that takes away from you relying on the strength of Christ. Your weakness highlights Christ's strength and work in you. Non-Christian, if you're not a follower of Christ and you're in here, you're always trying to put on a front for somebody, for something. I would submit to you that Christianity in its truest form is the only place where you can be entirely transparent and entirely accepted. Christianity in its truest form is the only place where you can be fully transparent and fully accepted. Not because we get comfortable with sin and don't try to fight against it, but because we recognize that sanctification, that growing in holiness, is an ongoing work and so we're not shocked when somebody says, I fell. Or when somebody says, I gave in to sin. We fight against it. But Christianity is where you can say that. And Christianity in its truest forms, there's been bad examples of this. Hopefully here at this place, we, we don't fall more so into that unhealthy side. Hopefully we fall into the healthy side. There's going to be a mixture. But Christianity in its truest form, when you confess your sin to one another, You're not cast out. As long as you continue to fight against it. Sanctification is ongoing. Paul says, don't don't place your trust in me. I'm just a man. I was with you in weakness. I was with you in fear and trembling. Don't place your trust in me. Place it in Christ. Paul's ministry was marked by simplicity. Simplicity in knowledge, what he came to, to share, Christ and him crucified. Simplicity in presence. He was among the people and he wasn't among people in a tremendously impressive way. And now simplicity in speech. So look at me in verses four and five. Starting in verse four, we see Paul describe how he spoke to them. He says, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power. Paul points out that he did not even speak. Not only was he not with them, among them in his presence in an impressive way, but even when he opened his mouth and spoke, that wasn't in an impressive way either. He says he didn't use plausible words. Some translations translate that as persuasive or convincing. He didn't use persuasive or convincing language. He was intentionally different than the other speakers of his day who would try to persuade with persuasive rhetoric, but not Paul. He had one message, and he tried to convey it as simply and plainly as possible. And so we as a church, let's do that as well as we evangelize and as we disciple one another and speak plainly with one another. So the question is, okay, we recognize on the negative how Paul did not speak. So how did he speak? Well, he says, in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Now, God was clearly at work in Paul's apostolic ministry. There were signs that have followed the apostles, miracles that took place. But I don't think Paul is only referring to the signs that followed his ministry, that outward miracles. I think he's also referring to the lives radically changed by his simple speech. To point out, hey, not only was there a demonstration of the Spirit, but there was power in the words that were said that radically changed the lives of those who heard. One commentary said the Corinthians wanted a demonstration of rhetorical gifts. Paul offers instead proof that is based on the fact that God's Spirit is powerfully at work. He says, look at the fruit. The real fruit. Not just the the fruit that we like to say numbers or baptisms or things like that. He says, look at the change of heart that is happening in these people. My plainness of speech, I wasn't terribly persuasive or rhetorical. It's like, but something happened here. It's a demonstration of the power of God and his word. So Paul, like we said earlier, he was well-educated. So why speak this way? Why speak in this plain way? way. Verse 5, I told you the structure. That verse 1 is kind of the the summary statement. And then verse 2, 3, and 4 are elaborating more so on that verse 1. And then verse 5, Paul says, here's why. We've touched on it, so we won't spend a ton of time here. But verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The Corinthians, like us today, were prone to rest their faith in whatever their favorite Bible teacher said. And we are not that much different. I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas. Someone says, I follow the old dead guys. I I like Calvin, or I like the Puritans, or I I really like straight shooters, so I follow MacArthur, and I follow Vody. Or maybe I I follow the guy who who really gets to the heart of things, so I, I follow Piper. I really like the way he gets to the heart of things. Or I follow the guy who has a great theology of the church, so I follow Dever. Whatever it is your guy is. Like the more engaging guy, Chandler. I like I liked Sproul because he's very expositional. I like the guy who has the Scottish accent, so Alistair. If I could just listen to a Scottish accent all day, I'll follow that guy wherever he goes. The list could go on and on. List your favorite guy, I follow him. But Paul is saying, don't be impressed with these men. Look at the Word of God. Let your faith rest, not in them, because they are man. Let your faith rest in the Word of God. Let that be your supreme authority. Paul wanted the Corinthians' faith to remain on Christ, not Paul. And so Christian, be built up and be edified by great Bible teachers. I listed those guys because I wanted to list people that I was like, hey, if you want to check them out, go for it. Go check them out. I intentionally didn't list some certain people. (laughs) I've been edified in various different ways by these men and plenty of others. So don't, don't feel like you can't be edified and built up by these men, but don't rest your faith on them. Don't base everything you do on them. Rest your faith in the power of God. For those who wouldn't call themselves a Christian, you are resting your faith in somebody or something. We all are. I'm trying to encourage this room to rest our faith in Christ. If you are not resting your faith in Christ, you're resting on something else. It's not a matter of opinion, it's just a matter of of fact. What is it that you are resting your faith on? Maybe it's a podcast you like, or a YouTube channel, or maybe it's a news channel, maybe it's a, whatever it is. Maybe it's a friend, family member. Whatever it is, if it is not Christ, I would encourage you to reconsider Because ultimately that person will fail you. Ultimately that podcast, that YouTube channel, whatever it is, will not be sufficient when you stand before the throne of God. May our confidence rest in Christ and Him crucified. We have a task that's set before us. Glorify God and make disciples. However, we can't use the wrong tools. Can't use the tools in a way that's not prescribed. We are told here to focus our ministry and our practice on Christ and Him crucified, because the power of God, not the wisdom of man, saves dead sinners. Effective ministry, therefore, is simple ministry. We must point people to Jesus Christ. We must point to his work on the cross, and we do this by proclaiming the word, God's word, because Jesus is the word made flesh who lived the perfect life that we could not live. And he died the death that we deserve to die. And yet, even after taking our sin, the sin of all those who call on his name, he rose in victory. And if you are in Christ, then there will be a day when your sin is entirely dead and you too will rise in victory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of Christ and him crucified. Lord, forgive us when we overcomplicate the task that you have given us. Forgive us when our faith rests in men rather than the power of God. Help us to reorient our focus on you. To be finally and fully persuaded by what you have said in your revealed word. Lord, help us to be edified by those who teach your word. Lord, have our ultimate confidence be in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.